You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. All right. Today we are joined here with Jeff K. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. K. Mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. I would like to introduce him. I know him as a journalist writing what I would call extremely enlightening pieces about the Korean War, biological weapons, and even MKUltra, though he had a whole career as a psychologist before that. Additionally, he wrote the book Cover Up at Guantanamo, the NCIS investigation into the suicides of Muhammad al-Hashani and Abdul Rahman al-Amri. Thank you so much for joining us again, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. Happy to be here. Yeah. All right. So let's maybe right up the right up on the top here, we could talk a little bit about John J. McCloy. I know we were emailing about him recently. Right. So recently I was interested in John J. McCloy because of the role he had in pardoning Alfred Krupp of the Krupp Steel Empire, and then later helping set up the Krupp Foundation. And my perception from just looking at his career was that he was sort of like an axe man for certain powerful sectors of, I guess you could say, the power elite. And for the listeners, John J. McCloy was a key figure in the Japanese internment camps, like the decision to do those. He, of course, pardoned Krupp and many other Nazis. He put Reinhard Galen in charge of West German intelligence he was on the Warren Commission and on and on. So, uh, Mr. K, what was uh, your article about John J. McCloy and the Korean War? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I wrote an article uh, which went into some detail about McCloy uh, back a couple of years ago. It was uh, I had come across a uh, somebody had posted like maybe it was on Twitter or maybe I read. I don't even remember anymore. I always came across it. Um, I do so much uh, researching and looking at different materials. But in any case, I came across a statement by the commanding general uh, after MacArthur during the Korean War for the Americans. And, um, uh, you know, MacArthur, of course, had been uh, uh, fired by Truman for essentially trying to force uh, Truman's hand on uh, sending the war into China and, and using nuclear weapons. And uh, not that Truman was entirely against that, but but he, um, he you know, he and, and the Joint Chiefs had uh, blanched at that partly or mainly perhaps uh, because of uh, the Soviets uh, having nuclear weapons at that point. In any case, MacArthur was fired and he was replaced by uh, Matthew Ridgway, who became commanding general of uh, the Eighth Army in Korea, and uh, what what caught my mind where McCoy comes in is that uh, around this time, or actually just uh, after uh, uh, um, he was, uh, um, he had the command of Allied forces in Europe, he testified, uh, McCoy was in charge as the high commissioner um, for occupation, Allied occupation in Germany, post-World War II. he um, had initiated or was was running a, um, um, a review of um, for clemency of high Nazi war criminals uh, who had been in, imprisoned, in fact, and had been convicted at, at Nuremberg. And um, this included uh, the, the administrative head of the concentration camps, included uh, many SS officers who had been involved in uh, the Holocaust. In any case, uh, uh, 
um, one of the people testifying as to whether there should be clemency or not was Ridgeway. Um, according to this book, and uh, the book was it was a book I know I read it, quoting materials that had been in a Germany a German book. In any case, uh, Ridgeway told them, you know, uh, I'm I'm being put in. You're asking me to uh, have uh, command of, of U.S. forces uh, uh, elsewhere. And I got to tell you that uh, when we were, uh, I, I, Ridgeway advocated the pardon of all the German officers who had been convicted in the war crimes on the Eastern Front. And that was because he felt that the orders he had given during Korean War were, quote, of the kind which the German generals are sitting in prison. And that it was therefore, yeah. quote, his honor as a soldier <laughs> that he would insist upon the release of these officers. Actually, one would say, I suppose you could say it was, uh, he was forced to because if these, if these convictions stood, then perhaps one day Ridgway himself, uh, might be convicted of war crimes. Uh, but, but he, he didn't put it exactly that way, of course. But he couldn't mm -hmm. issue a single command to a German soldier in the European army. And of course, this, during this period, Germany was being reassimilated back into the Western Alliance. Um, you know, aimed against the Soviet Union at the time. And, you know, the question arises, what orders did he give that were commensurate with the orders of the concentration camps in the Holocaust? Well, Ridgway <laughs> didn't say, and I don't, I can't say I know. I mean, there were mass executions of civilians. Orders were given for that um, by the United States government. There was napalming and carpet bombing and really genocidal attacks on the North Korean population, bombing of dams. You know, tons of war crimes. And, of course, the one that I've written the most about and researched the most about for myself was the use of biological weapons during the Korean War. So I'm speculating, you know, it, it, this article speculated that uh, um, Ridgway's remarks, in fact, um, were reference to war crimes and perhaps the war crimes of biological warfare. The, uh, McCloy... Uh, who later, and I know we've talked about this, uh, intriguingly was a member of the Warren Commission. Uh, he was a big backer of the Vietnam War. I and mean, this was a major mm -hmm. establishment figure um, that very few people know about today. His hands are, you mentioned a few of the other things going back to the Japanese internment camps um, that the U.S. ran. You know, uh, you know, he's a major figure and uh, we, we don't know enough about him. And like you, I'm, I'm going to certainly be you know, reading some biographies and researching him more. To the degree he intersects the biological warfare story, I, I don't know. But then there have been many surprising figures that I never would have expected um, that enter this tale. Um, perhaps McCloy will be one of them. We'll see. Yeah, that would be so fruitful. I'm definitely interested in doing future episodes on McCloy, for sure. Now, to get prepared for this interview, I read three of uh, your articles, and I would recommend them to my listeners. I'll say the titles, but don't worry, I'll put the links in. Uh, the three articles were Secret History, U.S. Air Force, Marine Corps Flyers, Marine Corps Flyers Confessions on the Use of Biological Weapons in the Korean War, the next article was Communications Intelligence and Charges of U.S. Germ Warfare During the Korean War. <clears throat> and then probably, I don't know, like, I think it was an astounding new article called CIA, MKUltra, and the Cover-Up of U.S. Germ Warfare in the Korean War. 
Now, that third one was published in Counterpunch. And, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I like, maybe, I guess my job is to sort of gas up your articles, but that third one was just mind-blowing. I mean, honestly, all your work is, like, really good, but, like, that one really draws, like, a very strong line between biological weapons and the MK Ultra program. But So yeah. we'll get into that maybe a little later, but <clears throat> at least... Because I think for the listeners, who maybe most of them haven't read your work, <clears throat> it's probably right. like we should maybe talk about the bioweapons used in the war and then maybe the communications intelligence that sort of proves it. And then the third article, we'll get to that. So, mm -hmm. <clears throat> so some of my listeners will probably know that during the Korean War, specifically I think 1952, U.S. prisoners of war who had been captured, they admitted to very curious things. They admitted to doing war crimes, but not just like any war crimes. They were specifically reporting that they were, that they had engaged in biological warfare attacks. And in response, the United States government denied engaging in biological warfare. And many of the sources that were claiming this, at least initially, not all though, as you point out, many of the sources were communist and therefore, in the context of the Cold War, not to be trusted. And in fact, the United States argued that these POWs had actually been brainwashed. Is that correct? Uh, yes, absolutely. It really, the whole brainwashing uh... Um, meme, if you will, or, or uh, propaganda trope, um, which American population in general does is familiar with. It's it's been brought up many times, particularly in the context of American prisoners held by uh, communist countries. This was true during the Vietnam War, and it was true during mm -hmm. the Korean War, and it's even true today when one talks about um, you know, with the propaganda against North Korea and China in a contemporaneous sense, it, it may not have prisoners, but um, the, the, the China, China, the People's Republic of China, Democratic uh, People's Republic of Korea are said to be brainwashing their own citizens, brainwashing prisoners, brainwashing the world, right? Um, Russia Gate was a lot about, you know, you know an attempts essentially to brainwash the American population by manipulating the media and Facebook. Mm -hmm. Anyway, everywhere you do the whole idea of brainwashing, but really it entered um, in uh, the American uh, discourse in the late 1940s when uh, there was uh, the Cold War set in um, between the United States and its allies and the Soviets and its allies um, when the, uh, there was a concerted attempt, uh, you know, over, over geography, if you will, and political control in Europe. As, as the Nazi regime collapsed under the blows of the Soviet counteroffensive against them and, and also uh, to a lesser but, but real degree uh, of the American and British uh, um, entering from the West. So, you know, there was an attempt to uh, infiltrate and uh, destroy the regimes, whether uh, that were considered to be Soviet influenced, like um, the first of those was Albania. But uh, other other attempts were uh, set up uh, in Hungary and other places. And in fact, it was in Hungary that the first brainwashing uh, yeah. uh, trials began. Although, really, in a sense, this goes back even earlier to the uh, Moscow trials, uh, 
in which the and when the Soviet regime put on uh, um, trial um, members of the original Bolshevik group that had uh, helped lead the original the Russian Revolution back in 1917, 18, 19, and the Civil War way back then, and uh, they confessed to you know the terrible crimes. Uh, and the question was, you know, why did they do this? Were they, you know? Um, Ten years late, you know, the Americans didn't care much then, um, but some people did on the left, and they were wondering about it. And um, ten years later, though, you now had American officials uh, testifying. Uh, you had the uh, um, an ITT executive, that's the telephone company for people who don't remember, the International Telephone and Telegraph uh, executive, Robert Vogler in, in Hungary, and later Cardinal Mazenti, uh, Mazenti. Um, Yes, in uh, um, also in Hungary, who confessed to economic sabotage and espionage for the Americans, and uh, they gave confessions in uh, at trial, and um, their confessions were for the most part true, as it turned out. In fact, there was an article on the the Vogler case just uh, published by MIT Press earlier this year, 2021. It took this long, finally, for the truth to come out that Vogler, in fact, was not uh, tortured. Um, or if he was, whatever the torture was, uh, he, what he testified to in court, nevertheless, was true. He was involved in espionage. And um, uh, it was a forerunner of what was to happen in a bigger way with the uh, uh, the various U.S. POWs who, from the Air Force and a couple of them from the Marine Corps who testified to use of biological weapons during the Korean War. But the Americans already were saying these people had been brainwashed. There was some kind of uh, uh, techniques that were used, mind control techniques. They, or at least that, you know, I don't know if they believed it themselves. Some in the government did. And this is getting a bit long-winded, but it's a huge subject. We could speak the whole hour just on how the U.S. mobilized uh, its, its resources, including psychological warfare resources, media assets like Edward Hunter, who's a, a U.S. journalist, you know, uh, who, who was one of the first people to really uh, uh, publish books and publicize the idea of brainwashing. So, that, yes, so by the time the flyers are giving their uh, public confessions or they're being uh, published and or videos of their uh, confessions uh, um, are, are being uh, transmitted in 1952, you know, the the whole idea of brainwashing has already begun. And in fact, I think one of the biggest revelations in my recent Counterpunch article is how um, over a year before there were any public confessions released by uh, China or North Korea um, about U.S. use of biological weapons, um, the, the, US, uh, um, uh, the U.S. Air Force and uh, various, uh, but it seems to me the CIA, uh, Psychological Warfare Division, which was heavily CIA um, in, in the Air Force, were um, had, were constructing a lab, what they themselves called a laboratory to study false confessions that were going to be that they knew were going to be given um, to uh, U.S. POWs were going to give. Now, how did they know that? Right, and this was mm -hmm. quite an extensive lab facility that was set up down in Maxwell Air Force Base. Um, so they were preparing for some kind of uh, uh, evidence or confessions or statements um, that they believed the Chinese or uh, the Koreans were going to um, get from their prisoners in relation to some kind of U.S. crimes. 
And um, of course, you know, as we learn later, uh, some of these people may have well known about or been involved in, who were setting up this laboratory, were involved in uh, um, aspects of the biological warfare program themselves. <laughs> so the whole thing's kind of mind blowing. Um, that, anyway, that's a, a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's great stuff. I mean, I think you highlight sort of an interesting pattern wherein the uh, accusations of brainwashing are leveled against people who, as it turns out, are confessing real crimes. Like that happened in yeah. Hungary, happened in Korea. And it happened, I, I, in my article, I, I, I think I go over the case of John Arnold, another uh, uh, um, Air Force guy who was... Uh, captured at the very close of the uh, Korean War, not around biological warfare particularly, but around espionage, the air um, resupply and reconnaissance. Uh, um, anyway, this is air unit of the CIAs that was actually run by the, under the, officially under the auspices of the Air Force and how they had, um, you know, and, and that was another brainwashing case where his confession was supposedly an example of communist brainwashing. And yet, um, and this, we didn't have to wait as long. In the 1990s, I believe, uh, the, some of the American press did expose, in fact, that, that, that he, his unit had been involved in uh, CIA espionage and that what he confessed to was true. But that took, you know, 50 years to come out. And then it was forgotten until I resurrected it. <laughs> uh, for, so, that's right. No, the work you do is so vital, but... Um... No, so for my listeners, basically the narrative that these pilots were con were brainwashed into conf making false confessions doesn't stand up in two ways. The first was basically the United States. Well, the narrative that the United States had to get into researching mind control to defend themselves, that doesn't hold up because the U the US was studying brainwashing before the Korean War. Yeah. And Second, they were, in fact, engaging in biological warfare. So on both counts, basically. Yes. The key documents on that, um, although I was felt very convinced for a number of reasons, there was a very powerful circumstantial case that could be made. It's not where I started believing, by the way. I, I originally accepted um, because a number of organizations and people I respected, you know, uh, would would... I would just say, as a matter of fact, and I assume they had looked into it, uh, that the Chinese communists uh, had used uh, torture or coercion and had uh, coerced false confessions, and that these false confessions were um, the techniques in which those these false confessions were produced were the, the same kinds of techniques that later the United States and the CIA adopted as the enhanced interrogation techniques. This is, this is the official story you'll read in the New York Times, for instance, and um, the U.S. media as a whole and the con you know, congressional investigations that that the U.S. counter, you know, uh, adopted these old you know, techniques of, of brainwashing and mind control and uh, uh, utilized them uh, um, to torture and get false confessions to start the Iraq war. So a lot, you'll hear people on the left saying this, right? Were false, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Iraq war was uh, a false so, um, and then they set up the idea that all torture, you know, pr torture only produces false confessions, um, which is not true. Um, 
torture is very problematic on many, many, many levels. And I'm strongly anti-torture and I got involved in all of this because of my work with torture victims and my identification with their struggles and their pain and, mm -hmm. and, the, and the attempt to, my, my attempt to uh, research and expose as much of the U.S. torture program as I can. But I certainly was never going to forget that my very first patient is a psychologist, which you mentioned, as a clinical psychologist for 20 years, you know, who had been uh, uh, a torture victim was somebody who came to therapy because they were very guilt, powerfully guilt-ridden because, in fact, they had given up the names of, of uh, associates um, under torture, and, uh, and presumably those people were either killed or imprisoned themselves. You know, and uh, it, it's disrespectful, is, is how I put it these days, to the victims of torture who, in fact, did speak under torture to claim that torture only produces false confessions. It's, mm -hmm. it's a gaslighting of torture victims. It's a terrible thing to do. I can't believe that some of my colleagues continue to do this. Um, that doesn't mean that torture is an effective mechanism of gaining information. Um, for many reasons, it's not that others have spoken to, and I could if you wish, but but it doesn't mean that. Uh, so the question of whether or not uh, the flyers were tortured, I think, is one we might get to. I don't know, but I can, I, I'm willing to talk about it, no problem. Uh, yeah, well, that's a good question because I correct me if I'm wrong, but they weren't tortured, were they? You know, I've I've looked. You know, it's very difficult. I worked as an expert witness. Uh, for United States immigration courts, uh, um, I was hired by attorneys, not by the courts. But um, but I was, you know, accepted uh, dozens of times as an expert witness uh, in court on the issue of whether or not someone had been tortured or not. And I tell you, it takes a very in-depth study of individuals uh, to ascertain whether or not an individual has been tortured or not, no matter what they say. Um, mm. My, you know, I, I looked at the, there were various recantations of the, uh, of the, um, the torture confessions given by a half dozen or more of the U.S. flyers. Um, out of, uh, there were 25 or so public confessions. There um, were six public uh, on paper recantations, and I believe there were others that either, in fact, I know there were others that either later came in book format or were um, at the time reported in the press, and they're said to have been videos available to see if some of these, if not most of them, although I have not been able to ascertain where they are or see them, they're probably in the National Archives if they exist. Mm. Um, but um, I, I was able to read them, and, and most of them, or half of them, of the six, there's only six published, but uh, of the Confessing Flies recantations, half of them seem... Uh, fantastical and very unlikely um, uh, in, in their assertions. Uh, the, the claims of the kinds of torture produced are just out, out of this world and, and beyond uh, belief. But the others talk about forms of torture that um, with today we would call psychological torture or we do know is similar to the things we've seen in Guantanamo elsewhere. And they're mainly just boiled down to things like isolation, long interrogations, like the third degree, mm -hmm. I guess you could call it, you know, just hours and hours of being interrogated, um, some sleep deprivation, and um, uh, um, the use of stress positions, in particular, uh, Mahurin 
uh, and uh, Schwabel, uh, two two high, very high, highest ranking uh, POWs, um, who confessed uh, spoke later to that. And I, I consider that there were a, a range uh, of different things that happened. You know, just being incarcerated in a POW camp is, mm. by its very nature, coercive, or in a prison yeah. or a jail cell, right? It's just uh, uh, the uh, so there's already some coercion involved, and that certainly comes up later when we look at the recantations themselves, which were produced under a coercive situation, right? The the so you have POWs held by, uh, you know, an enemy force, um, you know, but I'm getting a, a bit too detailed, I think. Bottom line is, I believe most of them were not tortured, and insofar as any of them were coerced, it was that, you know, they were subjected perhaps to isolation and maybe even some threats. This is wartime, you know, uh, mm. this is an extremely brutal war, um, you know, just hundreds of thousands of people are being slaughtered all over the place in the end millions um it's barbaric um it's a fight to the death it's a genocidal war and if you you know you're the idea that one was just always kind to one's uh, prisoners under this situation um i mean frankly uh, i i think they were lucky to have gotten the medical treatment that they got upon upon being shot down and uh, and not being killed on the spot yeah no Right. And, uh, you know, if, if people see the movie um, Saving Private Ryan, American listeners who might be listening to what I'm saying, you might recall early in the film after the D-Day landing, uh, the Tom Hanks character is walking through uh, the camp uh, to go get his orders for the next mission. And as he does, he sees the summary, you know, the United States summarily executing prisoners, German prisoners. Uh, you know, so the idea that that doesn't happen in war is crazy. Um, it happens on all sides because yeah. because of the nature of war itself. Nevertheless, most of the prisoners and most of the investigations into the uh, circumstances of, of Korean War prisoners um, came to the conclusion that um, conditions were very brutal um, in the first part of the war when North Korea was holding the prisoners and was on the run from American and allied forces pursuing them to the Yalu River. And that um, while many, many prisoners died, and some of them were treated, you know, perhaps brutally, um, that really for the most part, the prisoners were treated just the way the North Korean military itself was. They didn't have much to eat. They were exposed to intense cold. It was a brutal, tough time. And they just didn't have the facilities um, to really hold these prisoners in a, in a, in a, a in a way that was helpful, but these weren't the people who confessed anyway. So that uh, the first half of the war was like a running battle. I mean, I believe, wasn't it? Back and forth. Yes, insane. Back and forth, up and down the Korean Peninsula. You know, for the first year of the war, um, until it began to settle down in mid 1951 into kind of a trench warfare, World War One almost kind of. You know, mm -hmm. tit for tat over you know you know massive you know throwing you know uh, waves of men on both sides uh, into the slaughter just to to get a hillside. Um, uh, very difficult, and the U.S. controlled the air over most of the Korean Peninsula, so of course there was massive bombing going on, and so operations moved oftentimes to nighttime uh, uh, for the Koreans and the Chinese. Uh, anyway, it's just unbelievably. Uh, brutal, nightmarish war, um, 
one that still felt very powerfully in on the Korean Peninsula and in China. Um, I was going to ask, is there, was there the understanding or like the belief uh, by the U.S. troops that the Chinese were more fair or maybe more humane? Yes. The China, yes, under China, uh, of course, they, they had, uh, uh, China had a better infrastructure at that point to build camps for the prisoners. Um, they had a different philosophy. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. uh, they had been at war for a long time in civil war. And before that, the war against the Japanese in China. And so, you know, how to, you know, they, they developed a whole philosophy of, of dealing with prisoners, which was to treat them humanely and to try and convince them and educate them about the rightness of their um, position. This really rankled uh, uh, the, the U.S. and allied forces because it meant, you know, that the, the, the Chinese were trying to indoctrinate, or at least they felt that's mm-hmm. how they looked at it. They were trying to indoctrinate the prisoners into communism and to see the United States imperialists as, uh, you know, engaged in a, in a predatory uh, war, which they were, of course. But And um, yeah. in fact, when prisoners finally started being repatriated in early 1953, um, this, this I had never seen before, and it's reported in my new article, the majority of them coming back and being uh, debriefed or interrogated upon re- return to the U.S. Uh, were telling the, um, uh, the the people and the examiners and psychiatric uh, people, uh, doctors looking at them, that, yeah, they believed that there had been uh, um, biological warfare. But to show you how, um, how they weren't indoctrinated and how contradictory and how when you start to look at the facts of the, of the case, um, you start to see, you know, uh, that the, the reality is more complex. So here's the majority of U.S. prisoners returning to American control believed that the U.S. had engaged in germ warfare. But they also, most of them, believed that that was okay, that in a war you would mm-hmm. do that. That's what you had to do. So um, these were men from the Army, by the way, the poorly educated, uh, the grunts, if you will, um, the people mm-hmm. who confessed were, were mostly college-educated Air Force officers. A few of them were high, very high-ranking Marine Corps officers. They came from a very different social strata than the Army rank and file. And they were, for the most part, repelled, if we can believe the confessions that were later published um, by the Chinese, although suppressed in the United States and in the West in general. Um, one of the, the main things they said was, we were appalled to a man. The officer, the officers involved in this were shocked that they were going to do that. This, this was not, uh, uh, as a couple of the Marine Corps, you know, the Marine Corps is big on honor. And they saw the mm-hmm. use of a, of a sneaky weapon like this is extremely dishonorable. It was going to leave a taint on the Marine They were more concerned about the taint on the Marine Corps than perhaps they were about, you know, the wrongness of the, of the whole thing to begin with. Um, so, uh, and to, back to the torture. I wanted to fi- finish. I don't think I did mm-hmm. the torture question. I believe the majority of the people who confessed were not tortured, and that um, it's possible that a few of the high-ranking ones received what today people might call cruel and unusual treatment, um, mm-hmm. which would be the use of isolation or stress positions. Um, but you know, in the in the common sense. Uh, or the commonly used sense of the term torture that people mean that they were being, you know, bamboo under their fingernails, put on the rack, 
you know, whatever, you know, agonizing, you know, you know, lifted up and suspended in the, from the air. No, the, these things did not happen. A lot of that, like, oriental, like, fears of, like, you know, elaborate Chinese punishments type of thing. Right, exactly. Chinese water torture, right? But mm -hmm. the, the, you know, the, the majority of these people were, uh, you know, until the, we open up, at least one of them, by the way, has, um, um, which was in a, um, a documentary by uh, British uh, journalist Tim Tate, for Al Jazeera called Dirty Little Lies. And in that documentary, one of the flyers who retracted his statements um, was uh, uh, retracted his retraction and said that he was treated quite well by his Chinese mm -hmm. captors. And uh, um, so it's just, you know, so where are we with this? All we can do is look at the documents we have and make the best assessment and, and note when there's contradictions. And, you know, if it were just a matter of... Uh, these confessions, and one reason I held back on writing about them, um, even though I was aware of them for many years, uh, um, was one, I had to assimilate, assimilate them, but two is, you know, I was waiting to see if more, I could gather more proof about the use of the biological warfare itself. And it was when, and I, and I did come across that about five, six years ago in the form of CIA documents that were released, declassified in 2010, um, that um, were communications intelligence reports, analyses and reports uh, by the CIA from um, intercepts done by the Armed Forces Security Agency, which was the predecessor of today's NSA, National Security Agency, whose job is electronics, interceptions, and uh, spying and surveillance. And, of course, in a military sense, that means you're listening into the military communications of the enemy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, of course, those communications are encrypted. So you have to have people who know or some method in which you can break the code of the other side. And this, there was a lot of work done on this in World War II, of course, and World War I. And, you know, and um, in my article, I talk about some of the difficulties, the, the one about um, where I, I really go into great detail on this aspect of the, of the story. Um, you know some of the some of the problems the U.S. had in in uh, in their communications intelligence, but the bottom line was they were able to crack the code um, enough of the time. And uh, as the uh, the Army cryptologists, you know, would present their translated decryptions and send them to various people, their customers, right? And their customers were military intelligence and uh, the CIA, and uh, the CIA would get these raw data, raw encryptions, and they would write it up for their bosses back in DC, who would then could discuss these matters, you know, at, at high levels of policy and military planning back in, in Washington. And these reports, you know, were quoting very often uh, um, things, you know, the, the communications, intelligence decryptions uh, that they had received, military intercepts. And um, when I was reading through them, I found at least a half a dozen of them. And this is what the this is what the from the CIA's own release. This wasn't even a FOIA request. They had decided on the 60th anniversary of the beginning of the Korean War to release, you know, a big haul of the documents that they held classified. And but it's not all of them. 
and uh, so we're looking at a, at a, a, a tranche of documents that was curated by the CIA. And by the way, they've changed. I'm sure they rue the day that they let some of these documents out because they, um, the way it was originally released online was a, a, a very, uh, again, I'll use the word curated, a very organized, curated uh, um, presentation in their Freedom of Information Act reading room um, that nicely organized all the different components of their release by year and by the type of release it was. Today, it's just a mushmash. They, they, they got rid of all of that, and now their, their foyer room is, is, a, is a nightmare of trying to find anything. So what you're saying is they learned their lesson, basically. I think they yeah, they learned their lesson, uh, um, but it was too late because I mean, although yeah, it's too late on one hand, and on the other hand, you know, they I'm sure hope that uh, the silence, you know, that their assets in the academic and media communities are going to be able to keep the lid on this, and uh, um, and so far they have, so far they have, and. Let me let me uh, say for the listeners as well. So a lot of the perception about what espionage is in the popular culture is that it's spies, double agents, triple agents. But the overwhelming majority of the real actionable intelligence that the intelligence community uses comes from basically communications intelligence, signals intelligence. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and to that end, I think... Uh, who was it? I think maybe Victor Marchetti or that like a ridiculous amount of like all actionable intelligence comes from like common SIGINT. And so it's just like to a great degree, the actual useful information comes from just monitoring what the enemy is saying, the enemy, quote unquote. Uh, and in this case, the comment just like they were intercepting these basically Chinese and North Korean communications during the war. And mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong here, but like basically they were saying to each other, Hey, there are biological attacks happening. Could you uh, elaborate on that? I suppose. Yes. I mean, there would be, you know, you would get uh, uh, one unit uh, calling, you know, uh, right. You know, um, excuse me radioing into headquarters, please send us DDT. You know, we were having these uh, uh, biological or bacteriological, how they usually refer to it. You know, we're being flooded with, you know, bacteria by by, uh, weapons dropped with insects. Um, And, uh, um, you know, we're paralyzed here. If we don't get, you know, you know, what would happen is, uh, you know, biological weapons are terror weapons. Um, In many Mm -hmm. ways, you could consume them. I mean, um, even if you don't know exactly what's going on with them, um, you can suspect something is happening. And and the U.S. was throwing everything that they could think of um, that they had at hand um, at at the Chinese and North Koreans because their own biological weapons program was uh, very technologically driven and um, had its own bureaucracy uh, to work through, and it was just moving too slowly for the Americans. And they needed um, some kind of uh, ad hoc or, uh, you know, in, in lieu of um, the lack of other weapons, we needed something at hand. And they did have it at hand, and those were 
the weapons that and weaponry and theories of Shiro Ishii and unit Japan's Unit 731, who had mm. in fact engaged in a massive biological warfare experimentation and very large scale field trials. I mean, I, I, I think it's almost beyond field trial of the way the Japanese used it in China. Um, that mm-hmm. today we believe killed some hundreds of thousands of people with biological weapons during World War II. This is Japan's um, biological weapons forces, of which you know, 731 was the largest, but there was others. And um, I think I've wandered off perhaps from your, your question now. That's a good, that's a good uh, intro, though, because what ties existed between the U.S. biological weapons program and this Unit 731? Mm-hmm. Well, that was, you know, uh, I have approached my research once I felt convinced that there was uh, uh, biological warfare, particularly once I had read the communications intelligence files that would, you know, that would literally say, hi, this is, you know, some railroad protection unit in North Korea's radioing, you know, headquarters, you know, uh, that we just were attacked by bacteriological warfare. They're radioing back, you know, we've got to get vaccines there. We've got to, you know, we're going to send people to, you know, to examine. In fact, in some cases, they sent people to examine. They found that the uh, the um, the attack wasn't bio- a biological attack, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's complex. It wasn't as simple as, as, as you might think. But they, you know, uh, anyway, um, the United States, you know, kept secret for decades the fact that at the end of World War II, um, well, what had happened was, you know, the, Amer- the Soviet Union invaded uh, in August of 1945, invaded Manchuria or northern China, where uh, there was a, still a Japanese major Japanese military presence and, and, uh, and overran them and was able to capture some of the Japanese by, you know, uh, higher military hierarchy, including some of the members uh, um, um, who had been associated with Unit 731, the, the biological warfare program, or at least the military leaders who would, uh, uh, you know, uh, were worked in, in conjunction with the biological warfare unit. Um, and the Americans, uh, the, the, the Ishii, Shiro Ishii, who was the head of Unit 731, and others had fled just you know, tried to destroy what they could of their uh, weapons facilities and, exp- and bio labs, and they escaped via Korea down into uh, Japan, back to Japan, where the Americans, uh, in particular the counterintelligence corps, tracked them down and interviewed them, and people from Fort Detrick were sent to further um, uh, debrief these biological warfare scientists and military men and see what they could do uh, to get use of their specialized knowledge, a specialized knowledge which the U.S. didn't have because as as bad as the Americans might have been, at least at that time, they were not in any large-scale fashion experimenting upon human beings the way that the Japanese biological researchers had who had um, uh, used uh, vivisection uh, for your for your listeners. In other words, they would dissect people while they were still alive to to mm-hmm. examine the the disease process in in what they felt was the most naturalistic way, which is to see it right in front of them without the use of other medications, without you know at various stages as, as the disease progressed, 
Um, anyway, pretty horrible stuff. Now, correct me, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, unlike with something like Operation Paperclip, which was where, for my listeners, you know, the U.S. was bringing the Nazis to the United States. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was mainly more like with Unit 731, they wanted the data, but they didn't necessarily bring those scientists from Japan. Is that correct? As far as we know. Yes, for the most part. Now, there's some dispute over that, but in particular, uh, um, Murray Sanders, who was the first of the Fort Detrick personnel to arrive in Japan, uh, um, in Japan in, in 1944, late 1945, who interviewed um, some of the Unit 731 people, um, told two British researchers uh, who were writing on this in the, in the 1980s that Ishii did, in fact, go to Fort Detrick and, and give lectures and talk to people back mm. there. So it's possible that some researchers were brought back, and, and God knows I and others have tried to nail that down, but we have not been able to do so. Um, we have been able mm. to see that Ishii would disappear from time to time, and that was noted in the press um, because he was a famous figure. But, uh, well, you know, was he, you know, but for the most part, yeah, they wanted the data, which was in the form of uh, journal. Uh, books and, and uh, uh, medical materials, um, uh, clinical examinations of, of people who they were experimenting on. I'm sure that there were uh, um, some kind of written reports on the field tests they did. Um, I believe Ishii himself helped supervise uh, some hundreds of page summary of the work they did that was handed over to the Americans. And then the, the treasure trove of it all was approximately 8,000 or so slides, you know, like, like you use, you put under a microscope, slides of, of, of samples of biological material from human beings that they had uh, um, saved and rescued. And, and those were handed over as well to the Americans, Fort Dietrich people. Yes. Let me ask you a question because I know it might be, I, I don't want to sound flippant, but like, you know how like with uh, basically like torture, there's yeah. the this idea that it doesn't work and it doesn't seem to necessarily be founded in the evidence. I've heard that, you know, whether you talk about vivisection or live human mm -hmm. testing or these things, especially mm -hmm. more maybe with the Nazis, there's the idea mm -hmm. that like this was bad science. And mm -hmm. do you get any indication that the research was valuable? Yeah, well, um, I, I cannot, I'm not a biologist. So I can't said mm -hmm. or a bacteriologist or a virologist. But according to those who were looking at the materials then, they found it to be very valuable. And in particular, two researchers who worked, one for the, uh, the, the Pentagon's Research and Development Board, which was a, you know, the highest ranking level of, uh, um, uh, of uh, the highest ranking unit that the military had, that was re, you know, trying to come up with uh, uh, ways to assess what weapon systems should be funded going forward and researched and implemented. And then also, of course, the Army Chemical Board, uh, uh, Chemical Corps, excuse me, Army Chemical Corps, which was in charge of the U.S. chemical and biological and re, uh, warfare program, uh, programs, which, which uh, bled into each other uh, in many different ways. Um, mm -hmm. And it was two of them, uh, a, a guy by the name of Edward Wetter, and I write about these people multiple times, and Henry Stubblefield, uh, 
Shuttlefield was a, a doctor, a medical doctor, so trained. Uh, Wetter's background is a little more obscure. Um, he may, he's a, um, in a New York Times reporter. For, he's been referred to as a doctor, but I can't establish he was really a doctor. In any mm-hmm. case, these guys later on show up um, when the military starts ramping up for what they themselves called a crash program in biological warfare in 1951 late 1950 through 51-52, um, they were in key positions. In fact, Edward Wetter was the man who went into secret sessions in early 1952, February 1952, to the um, House Committee on Appropriations to talk about the funding of the biological weapons programs that they were doing. And of course, and, and of course no record, except for the fact that he went into such hearings, no no record of those hearings has ever been produced. It may still exist somewhere in Congress, but mm-hmm. Congress is not subject to Freedom of Information Act, which a lot of people don't realize. And as a result, there's there's no way to get that material unless it was held uh, by another agency. But that's uh, no one's come up with it anyway thus far. But the point is that these people who were identified by a journalist by the name of John Powell, who had been in China, um, during the period of uh, both the uh, Unit 731, but also during the period of the biological warfare in Korea, and uh, was the editor and publisher of the China Monthly Review, which was an English language uh, um, journal out of China. And uh, in fact, his father, founded by his father, who himself had been tortured by the Japanese, and in fact testified at the war crimes trial in Tokyo uh, after the war. But uh, uh, Powell was, uh, was and his uh, wife and another co-worker were uh, arrested after they, soon after they came back to the United States and charged with sedition for publishing on the question of the biological warfare charges hmm. um, and, and um, including publishing some of the confessions of some of the flyers. And uh, their, you know, Powell's journalism career was destroyed and... Uh, um, many years later, he turned to the Freedom of Information Act to try and redeem himself and his. Um, and one of the things he came up with was the first in the, in the West, anyway, definitive and extensive uh, um, um, documentation showing the U.S. alliance in amnesty that they granted to Shiro Ishii and the Unit 731 individuals, and um, and certainly led the road forward to. Uh, um, the, the kind of work that I've been doing. One of the documents he found was um, a special intelligence document um, that was written by two men, and these are the men, Stubblefield and Wetter, you know, advocating for amnesty, saying how we have to keep all this information deep in uh, um, intelligence circles. And in fact, when you read the documents, yeah, you, you know, even within the government itself, and this is what's so eerie, even in top secret reports later it's as if the whole episode with unit 731 never happened after Mm -hmm. 1947 or so that's it it just disappears and um they got swallowed into the maw of tremendous secrecy i guess you'd say in uh um fort dietrich and uh so Wetter and Stubblefield, you know, Wetter was uh, executive secretary to the Biological Warfare Committee of the uh, Research and Development Board. That was very high level Pentagon official. 
was later in charge uh, of, of various subcommittees related to that, the, the, the Committee on um, um, Human. Um, he was the point man, and Stubblefield was involved a lot, apparently, in, in security, some administration things. He also was in charge of the division about biological warfare on plants. Because, again, mm-hmm. the listeners don't know, this is such a large subject. I mean, there was the biological warfare aimed against human beings, biological warfare aimed against crops, and then biological warfare aimed against animals, in particular, um, in in parts of the world that still where animals were were still heavily involved in agriculture, um, or even you know yeah. for things such as dairy, hogs, etc. You know, uh, you know yeah. biological warfare, and that happened later against against Cuba, arguably in, the, in Eastern Europe. Etc. But um, that's another subject that that would end up taking us far afield. <laughs> yeah, I almost started on a tangent that probably would have. <laughs> okay, so let's see here. <laughs> no, this is a huge subject, and it's and 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 part of the problem is you know I've it's still. Um, it's still a, for me. This is still a, a project. Uh, uh, what do they call this? Uh, uh, it's, it's still in, in progress. It's a research project that's ongoing, and I still am learning new things all the time, all the time. Just about every paragraph you're saying gets me like thinking of a whole other direction, and I'm like, okay, no. Yeah. Just got an unfinished diary that she once gave her darling son. It starts the day when he left her and begins neath the enemy's gun. From mother's arms to Korea, and tomorrow I'll face the front line. The next line was wrote by his buddy From a foxhole to a mansion on high Last night I saw Mother kneeling By the old stone to pray In my dream I thought I was with her and that's all my darling could say Please tell his sweetheart who's waiting For his ship to anchor at shore To change her plans and forget him Her lips you kiss no more Mother's arms to Korea, and tomorrow I'll face the front line. Then the next line was wrote by his buddy from a foxhole to a mansion on high. Okay, so when we're talking about this biological warfare in the context of Korea. What we're talking mm-hmm. about, or at least what I read from your articles mm-hmm. was 
We're talking smallpox, typhus, malaria, Mm -hmm. the bubonic plague. Uh, I think I saw some stuff about poisoning water wells, Mm -hmm. dropping insects with diseases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interestingly, for current events, uh, some suspect activity with vaccines that may or may not be vaccines. And then uh, attempts to destroy crops, like you said. Mm-hmm. And so, are, did I miss anything, or were there any other diseases? Well, there were also there was uh, uh, particularly experiments, perhaps with encephalitis, um, with mm. something called the rickettsias, which is a whole classification of organisms. It's kind of, kind of similar to viruses, but not. Which I can't say I totally understand uh, um, that were also involved. Um, Q fever. Uh, uh, brucella, which was the one that the United States government uh, um, admits in its own documentation that they had uh, created, a, had standardized by 1951 as a biological mm. weapon and uh, presumably was used. Um, uh, another whole listing and another argument, another massive, I, I do want to make sure I, I make this point, uh, of uh, data comes from a report by the uh, self-styled, I mean, they call themselves this, the International Scientific Committee for Investigation of Bacterial Warfare in China and Korea. It was organized by the World Peace Council at the behest of of China, um, or actually of China's Sinica um, uh, Scientifica, it's a science uh, association in, in association with other scientists around the world, particularly in the West who were sympathetic to China and the Soviet Union, but not necessarily communists themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, they organized a mostly Western science-led uh, uh, um, um, uh, group of individuals who traveled to China and Korea, North Korea, in the summer of 1952 to investigate the charges of, bac- of bacteriological warfare. And they did find, and, and they issued a report, a report which also, of course, was censored in the West. Um, you know, in which a campaign within government was used to, because, because the, the, the report uh, was written for the most part and uh, the final report. And certainly uh, its most well-known figure on this committee was a man by the name of Joseph Needham, who was one of the premier scientists in the United Kingdom in his day and later a major mm-hmm. historian of science himself. And... Um, and, you know, his his bona fides were as high as you could get. He was as respected a scientist as there was in the entire world. And he was turning around and saying, yeah, you know, we went there, we investigated, we looked at all the evidence that was gathered. We did some studies ourselves, which is usually not talked about. And um, we, you know, there were uh, tertiary studies, yes, but they were still involved in, in trying to assess the uh the veracity of these charges and the data that had been gathered and said and verified that this in fact had been a case of uh, biological warfare and they noted the similarity to the methods used by the japanese hmm. and um of course that was top secret so here's a report it was like a, it was another if the confessions as i say were kind of like the propaganda version of incendiary uh uh bombs the, the Needham report, as it came to be called in the press, or the ISC report, was kind of like a nuclear weapon <laughs> because it yeah. dropped in and it was had hundreds of pages of documentation. It, 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 they looked at everything they could possibly look at, and they had a lot of testimony from victims 
and people who had and families of victims, something you almost never hear from in the other mm-hmm. reports. And uh, um, in a very compelling case, one that even within the, um, the CIA itself, in their own scientific and uh, their own science advisors found very difficult to refute. Of course, you know, they had to say within, within uh, they would say things like, well, you know, this is scientifically impeccable, but of course it's all lies. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, they were smeared as like common turn agents, weren't they? Or something to that effect. Uh, yeah, well, or, yeah, common turn agents, dupes, brainwashed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever. Yes. Uh, but the report, you know, another major finding, and I can't, I can't, I must have made, and I'm not bragging here. It's, it's really, I say this with incredulity because it's hard to believe that so much has been covered up, um, over so such a long period of time. But in, uh, um, when the, uh, 19, when the Korean war started, and, and, and uh, there were a lot of uh, revelations coming out about various things, particularly the Soviets had published and, and, and uh, um, spread in the West the transcripts of their trial of the Unit 731 criminals, biological warfare criminals, uh, at Khabarovsk in late 1949, um, only months before the Korean War began. And... Uh, those you can read it today as a free ebook on, on Google. Just look up Kabarov's war crimes trial, and it's it's a it's an incredible book. And and uh, remember, the United States had made the fact that the Japanese had even engaged in biological warfare a, a top secret uh, for intelligence circles only, and they denied anything that came otherwise. So here's. Here's a report, I mean, here's a, a trial testimony with lots of confessions, if you will, by Japanese war criminals about what they did. And uh, um, I believe that the response to that and other propaganda at the time led the United States to um, first unofficially and then later officially um, engage in a massive program of censorship and uh, of the males. Remember, this is before much of your listeners and perhaps yourself cannot even remember a time before there was an Internet. It just isn't in your history. But there was a time in which the only way you could get news was over the radio, um, uh, particularly back in the days of uh, the Korean War, the radio, maybe some early television or books and magazines right, and newspapers. And that was it. Um, there was no Internet to tell you this or that, something else. So um, the, we're talking about physical pieces of paper that needed to enter the United States from outside the United States if it was going to be distributed, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, like Progress Publishers was a famous distributor, I believe, of uh, uh, materials from the Soviet Union. What they, they did is uh, they set up a massive program of interdiction and destruction of materials from so-called, quote, Iron Curtain countries. Communist countries are believed to be under communist influence countries. In effect, we're talking about East Europe, Soviet Union, China, and uh, North Korea, and later Cuba. Um, so that anything that entered the, so the U.S. Customs Service and the U.S. Postal Service um, would had seven different centers set up around the United States where international mail came in, and anything that they deemed to be of propaganda value, you know. Uh, from the outside, say, for instance, the book that China published 
in English of the Confessions of the U.S. Flyers or the International Scientific Commission report in late 1952. Um, these things were 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 uh, intercepted um, at these uh, mailing facilities um, as, as they came into the country and they were destroyed in the hundreds of thousands and ultimately, if you add it all up, really the millions. Um, I, I was. I was blown away. So, uh, what? How could this be? I, I, I discovered this only uh, by chance. A chance uh, is I was um, following through, doing my due diligence on things like, you know, uh, claims about anthrax, et cetera. I was corresponding with some U.S. scientists who, by the way, were uh, did not claim they did not believe that there was biological warfare. So, so I can't say that these were leftists by any means. They were establishment scientists. I don't want to name him because... Uh, he didn't give me this quote for attribution, so I'm not going to do that. But he told me, and it turned out to be true, in an email, in passing, and it didn't hit me for like a year. I just happened to come back on this email to look for something else, and then it hit me. He said, well, you know, Jeff, you know, our archives aren't very good because for a long time things were destroyed. Then he went on. <laughs> I just, I don't know what I thought when I first read that. I guess it's not what I was looking for. I was looking for other information. So it just went over my head, sailed past me. <laughs> and when I went back, I looked at that and said, what is he talking about? I never heard of that. And I started looking. And it didn't take me long to find in some obscure law review that, in fact, there were protests or in the issues of, of the, the journal Science, which is still in, uh, in publication, major, the major science of, of American journal, which is called Science, um, had some op-eds back in the late 50s saying, you know, this is really bad for science, this, this, this policy we have of, of censorship and destroying things coming into the country. All right, because science relies on international cooperation. They want to know what's occurring elsewhere. It's actually harming the U.S. And in fact, the Kennedy administration, when it came into power after Eisenhower's administration and loss of Richard Nixon, tried to stop the policy. Um, but the right wing in the United States was so powerful, they um, they overrode Kennedy's executive order and, and got Congress to just put it into law. And it took another five years or so until, uh, four years, I guess, until the U.S. Supreme Court finally outlawed that policy. But in other words, from 19, roughly late 1950 until uh, 1965, you know, the uh, U.S. government was intercepting and destroying millions of people, millions of pages of, of information that was being sent into or asked from the United States, you know, citizens of the United States um, as because they didn't want to let Americans see this uh, so-called propaganda. And that's why we're starting from scratch here, really. It does sort of uh, like raise some questions about the, uh, the Cold War paradigm that the U.S. was the free and open society and that the uh, Soviet, right? Right. No, of course, it's a total lie. Character and the fellas hate him so, but 
but with the girls this character is a comrade Romeo. Since my love he's sabotaging and the love he has been dodging, give him what he deserves, jailhouse lodging, get that communist Joe. That's all Joe. So to to wrap up the uh, biological warfare aspect, I really liked mm-hmm. that quote that you cited. Uh, no one comes out of the biological warfare program smelling like a rose. Yeah. Like, geez. That was in a, a, a secret, formerly top secret history of the United States Air Force uh, um, involvement in the biological warfare program of the United States military. And... Um, we don't know who actually made that statement. It was, it was even, even within the context of the report, uh, the woman who wrote it, Dorothy Miller, was the Air Force historian, uh, did not give the name of that individual. Um, mm-hmm. But they were, re- they were responding to, well, we would, I would like to believe that they were responding in part to the nefarious doings in which um, they were using uh, uh, biological warfare weaponry derived from uh, Japan's Unit 731, in um, in large part, maybe not totally, but in large part from Unit 731 um, during the Korean War. But but also there were other things going on uh, um, in terms of conflicts between different components of the U.S. government, between the CIA and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, between the Air Force and the Army, particularly uh, mm-hmm. the Army Chemical Corps and uh, the uh, Air Research and Defense Command and uh, right, and the people at Wright Patterson. In other words, in in the different military components, um, like the Air Force, um, there were people who were had their own agenda about uh, um, how you what they should be doing about say biological warfare. And then in the Army Chemical Corps was a different group of people, and uh, they might agree that we should have it, but who's in charge? Right? Yeah. Whose ideas are gonna are gonna get the funding? Whose careers are going to get the juice? <laughs> and um, so there was a lot of, uh, of, of jockeying around, uh, a lot of uh, things promised that didn't come through, a lot of corruption, I would imagine, as well. And, uh, um, but I think the whole idea, and the reason it haunts you, is this whole idea that no one comes out of this program smelling like a rose is because biological warfare uh, thinks it is, it, is, uh, mm-hmm. um, it is rightly seen as something horrific. And um, and it is. And um, all one has to do is look at the world today with even the, the slightest suspicion 
that, for instance, the COVID-19 pandemic is related to biological warfare, you know, as driven people into a, a, a tizzy. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and of course, you know, people are ready uh, to believe that. And I, I can think of reasons to believe it and I can think of reasons to disbelieve it. But, um, but anyway, we can see how these things grab a hold of, uh, you know, of people involved. It, it's horrific to think that, uh, you know, it's really the turning of nature. And, and it's not surprising in some ways to lead into the, the third article you mentioned, the one on CIA and MK Ultra and the cover-up, that the same people who were going to be involved in promoting biological warfare were also involved or at least some of the leading members were involved in the CIA's mind control programs, which were heavily interpenetrated by the, the military at the time. They were working together. <laughs> they were, in many cases, the same people. That's what's kind of so shocking. Yeah, that's that's what really blew me away. Yeah. Right. And that's why this is the cover. I mean, the same people, to get to the chase, who were involved in or, or were some of the people involved in organizing and uh, the U.S. biological warfare uh, campaign, particularly those around the Air Force, um, but not just the Air Force. Uh, anyway, they they were later the ones who were going to be put in charge of debunking the confessions of the Air Force flyers, which in those days was the main thing you had. They had two things. There was the, the Joseph Needham's ISC report, and then there were the confessions of the Air Force flyers. All of that kind of came out in a big way in uh, autumn of 1950. Uh, uh, well, I'm sorry. The ISC report was the uh, September 1952, and then in November 1953, the bulk of the flyers' confessions were published. And um, there had been earlier ones, although those had come out as early as May of 1952, but the bulk of them came out towards the end of 1953. Well, let me let me ask you this. So mm -hmm. I think I saw in one of your articles, you wrote mm -hmm. the State Department argued for a strong counteroffensive to expose the big lie, quote unquote, of the communist biological warfare charges and thus mm -hmm. undermine communist credibility on a broad front. And then mm -hmm. my question to you is, do you think that the narrative that the prisoners of war were brainwashed into confessing is that strong counteroffensive they're referring to? Yes, I, I believe that is the major one. Yes, there was there was also the attempt to um, um, throw the scientific credentials of the people involved in the ISC report into uh, uh, some disrepute, and you know, mm -hmm. so they had two things they needed to do to go back to that. They Couple needed prongs. To, yeah, they needed to destroy the the credibility of the ISC report. And there was another report as well, by the way, that preceded that, that was done by, not scientists, but by uh, a, a kind of leftist international association of democratic jurists, which is still, by the way, in existence today, who had hmm. sent an investigatory team to China and Korea as early as March of 1952. And, you know, they listened and they looked at the evidence that the Chinese had gathered and the North Koreans and they said, and they talked to various people, uh, witnesses, and, and said, yes, this had happened. So, you know, they, they needed to throw that into disrepute. But the, the much more influential report was the one that came later from the ISC. And then there were the various confessions um, from 
the flyers. Some of them had been uh, videotaped and released in the West, and, and uh, they're still quite powerful statements. Uh, um, if you look at them by people like Floyd O'Neill, um, you know, who just, you know, you, you can just hear the sincerity. He says, what am I going to tell my children, my grandchildren, when they say, you know, were you involved in this, this crime of dropping germ weapons on civilian, you know, on, on, on populations? What, how am I going to look them in the face? Right? I mean, the man is in agony as he's saying this. You know, uh, and, and, and no one's torturing him. And he's saying this in front of, you know, a group of uh, the press and uh, other people he was allowed to come out and speak to. Um, but yes, the brainwashing thing was the number one thing. And in fact, in that, and, uh, um, uh, but they, they couldn't, you know, they, they didn't trust the people coming back, either because they knew that there had been war crimes, I believe, or, and also uh, just because they were outside of their control. They needed to put some control on these people. And in one of the ways they did that is they had a program, a mind control program that they'd been working on since the late 40s. Far be it for me to have sympathy necessarily for these pilots who were engaging in war crimes, but like... Yeah. By the end of what of this third article, like you almost feel mm -hmm. sorry for them because of what the U.S. government then put them through. Oh yeah, you know I do have some sympathy. I mean, these men, you know, a mm -hmm. lot of them. If you, when you read through, they're, they're, these guys are like twenty two, twenty three years old. Yeah, they're not hardened. Uh, and that's not true, of course, of the, the higher ranking individuals. Mm -hmm. But a no, you know, the, a number of these cases, uh, the people who were re, uh, testified to the ISD commission, the, the ones who were videoed, I mentioned, um, the bulk of even the the, the people who uh, uh, gave confessions that were published in late 1953, they were they were very young men, and they had been, um, you know, indoctrinated um, as you know in the military, and. Um, they were not comfortable with what they were doing, but they believed they had to follow orders. You know, um, mm -hmm. of course, that's an old tale, isn't it? You know, they could, you know, perhaps they could have refused to do that. And perhaps there were people who refused to do that. We don't really know. I suspect there were. Mm -hmm. But um, we would have to get into the uh, archives that aren't open to us to really know that for sure. That's just a suspicion I have based on later um, research that was done, like the Milgram thing, uh, um, uh, Milgram research that people famously know, which was CIA finance, by the way, which looked at, you know, people turning up, you know, the electrical shock voltage on uh, subjects to see if, if, if you would, uh, um, if, if uh, the average college student in this case, if subjects were college students, if they would do what the researcher ordered them to do, even if it meant somebody was being electrocuted. And they found that a number of people did. But here's the important point. A number of people refused, right? Mm -hmm. A number of people refused to do that. And so I'm suspecting that that happened in the, uh, 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 that that happened as well during the biological war campaign. But, you know, the, uh, but the, the, the U.S. was truly paranoid. And, and this came out um, particularly around the Valley Forge. Army POW situation, so that um, when the first POWs were released, and, and and by the way, the CIA was gaslighting their own, their own people and other agencies like the FBI um, mm -hmm. to themselves. They would say, 
yeah, these army people, you know, we're supposed that we're going to research them. We heard there's some hardcore, meaning communist, prisoners of war who've been converted. And we need to know because some of them could become double agents. I mean, there were, in the sense that any government has a legitimate counterintelligence activity in ferreting out double agents, you know, it, that's not therefore unusual. However, uh, they, you know, these people were not double agents and, uh, they were to be experimented on um, using, um, at that time, the predecessor of MKUltra was known as Project Artichoke, using, you know, all sorts of different drugs, electric shock treatment, hypnotism, et cetera, on prisoners. And they wanted to see if they could erase their minds, cause amnesia, cause them to say something they didn't believe, um, you know, control their minds. And it's speculative, but did they do this to some of the flyers who later retracted their confessions? It becomes an open question. Absolutely. Um, however, I will say that more the parsimonious answer to that is we do know we don't know, but we do, what we mm -hmm. do know is that they were threatened. Um, as, as I go into uh, in the article, uh, they were threatened with uh, prosecution for treason court-martial and prosecution mm -hmm. for treason if they didn't you know, retract what they said. They were warned that no matter what they said could be used against them in court where they would be, you know, where they were, and they were believed to have given aid and comfort to the enemy by their confessions. So they believed to a man, even, even, even uh, um, uh, a guy like Walker Mahurin, uh, who was a colonel in the Air Force and a, and a World War II, you know, flying ace hero who had many friends in the CIA and in the Pentagon, you know, found himself worrying a great deal about what was going to happen to him because of his confession. Uh, so, uh, anyway, the, the links that are, the article is very dense reading um, that you bring up, and there's a lot in it. Uh, so perhaps mm -hmm. I should turn it back to you so you can tell me some of the questions you have about it, though. Yeah. Well, right. One thing that comes to mind is that the the FBI's belief from the CIA's intelligence, quote unquote, that there were actual double agents, you know, that these were like Manchurian candidate spies. Like, to me, that sounds like, and I'm speculating here, but like, that sounds like classic FBI justification for just surveilling them for less savory purposes, right? Well, that could be, although I, I believe there were, they, they, these people were clinically paranoid. Um, Hoover yes. and the others, I mean, they, 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 they took really seriously what they were doing and they believed, and I think the CIA fed it. The CIA, you know, so in the article I mentioned, you know, and, I, and I've since found another place where this, this was occurring, but, uh, you know, the CIA was telling certain components of government like the FBI, yeah, the, 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 these guys had been brainwashed, they'd been won over, they'd been uh, indoctrinated into communism. And, and in fact, um, they told the FBI, which was astounding because it was such a lie, um, that uh, uh, the, the one newly won over communists in the American military were running the POW camps. Which <laughs> <laughs> was, was just insane I mean, how they came up with this. Of course, the same CIA individuals, including the, the, the high ranking CIA member who was assigned to the Eisenhower Psychological Strategy Board, which was you know, mainly, uh, which was chaired oftentimes by Ellen Dulles himself, um, 
you know, in their own report on, say, the Valley Forge thing I mentioned, where they were going to use the artichoke uh, uh, materials, is that there, there were no hardcore. Maybe one guy they were a little suspicious of, but, but that these people weren't weren't uh, um, a danger to the United States at all. That they were, you know. But when they got into a different venue, and then now they were giving a report to Hoover and other top FBI officials, they were saying, "Oh no, these guys are really." They're really hardcore, and they're, they were taking over, you know, POW camps, which was a total lie. You know, I'm not so sure Hoover believed them. Hoover didn't really trust the CIA, mm-hmm. um, per se. And, it, you know, it's certainly interesting stuff, but, you know, my I, I'm not going to uh, spend my time trying to, to find out to what degree J. Edgar Hoover was a good guy <laughs> and bad guy on this or that. I mean, I, 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 all I'll do is note that he was suspicious of the CIA and probably for good reason because the CIA was gaslighting him and other people all the time. And of course, he didn't like that the CIA had encroached on his turf, um, particularly in Latin America. But uh, uh, yeah, um, and you know, and, uh, and he didn't like biological warfare. Hoover, by the way, hmm. apparently I'm reading in it. He just I don't know. He didn't like it. He didn't like the the MK Ultra stuff. I mean, you know, it's not that they didn't believe in brutality and they didn't believe in hypnotism, you know, whatever. But uh, but in general, that wasn't how they operated. A lot more classic police actions with the FBI. Yeah. Yes. Much more classic cops. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Not that you know, there's not a lot of evil things that stem from that as well. But uh, but it just wasn't their cup of tea, shall we say. Yeah. Now. Okay, so these POWs, they were subjected to experimental drugs. You said speedballs, hypnosis. And then separate from, well, then they were interrogated by the Army's counterintelligence corps. And separate from that, you cited some, like, kind of unusual experiences they had afterwards. Like, I think you Mm -hmm. said one got Mm -hmm. into an unusual car accident we don't have, I'm laying out what I have and, and, um, I have mm-hmm. partial, I have this and that. And I lay, I kind of, I tried to put it together as comprehensively as I could. I do not have anything that says that any confessor of biological warfare was subjected to, uh, mind control, uh, forms of interrogation or torture. Mm. Um, however, I can tell you the people who were involved in that, were the same people who were interrogating them. <laughs> Whether or not they, you know, I don't, but, but we don't have anyone saying I was misused in this way, I was tortured. We don't have a, a record that says that. Um, we do have, you know, uh, we, what, what, what we have are, you know, a certain subsection of, of POWs who were returned, who uh, were definitely the subject of an experiment at Valley Forge Army Hospital in Pennsylvania. And um, they were, uh, as you said, subjected to experimental drugs. When I say speed balls, it was uh, they were using barbiturates, um, so-called truth drugs, and uh, mm-hmm. um, also giving them. Uh, so that was the uh, um, the downer, if you will. And then they were also giving them benzodrine or methamphetamine, uh, was popular among the, the CIA at that moment, and uh, and then hypnotizing them while they were being jazzed up, juiced down. <laughs> drugged and and the experimental drugs we we don't even know what all those drugs were and um they were exposed their their first experiment in spring of 1953 kind of got blown because you know word word got out that these 
kind of weird psychological things were psychiatric things were taking place. And the Surgeon General, who the CIA was briefing about this, um, and who had worked with the CIA in other ways, um, apparently balked at, at one of the experimental drugs, and they had to kind of tone it down, or at least stop at that moment. But later reports show that they went back anyway, and interrogated these people, the, the artichoke people, and it, it seems hard to believe that they didn't in fact then use their techniques. Why use this special artichoke group if they're not going to be using the artichoke techniques? Um, yeah. Now, Walker Mahuran, again, was a, a very high-ranking uh, uh, POW. Uh, he's the only one that was mentioned in the comment documents. Um, interestingly enough, his name surfaces. So the U.S. The CIA was certainly alert to the idea that Walker Mahuran was, uh, had been captured. That, which is, of course, of some interest because Walker Mahurin in his biography, his autobiography written, um, I believe, in the late 50s, um, called Honest John, mentions that uh, he was friends with, you know, a guy who was uh, in the CIA, a guy by the name of Joseph Bryan III. And Joseph Bryan III, later, it turned out, when I, now that's something where I read, by the way, no, that's a different guy. No, Joseph Bryan III, uh, Joseph Bryan III was a uh, uh, the chief of the OPC, the CIA's covert arm uh, of their political and psychological warfare division. Now, psychological warfare, you know, when we're talking about psychological warfare, we're talking about covert ops. That's what psychological mm -hmm. warfare mostly is. In fact, the thing where I said this is an ongoing work in progress for me, I just discovered Last week, an article, you know, as my research continues, in a 1953 publication of the um, Air University, which was the uh, kind of in-house um, magazine put out by the air staff down in Maxwell, where all this stuff was happening at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Um, uh, anyway, the, uh, the article is an is a expose of the Air Force's Psychological Warfare Division. And saying basically a big complaint saying, you know, these people claim to be doing psychological warfare, meaning you're, which in their minds from World War II meant you're dropping leaflets on people, you're trying to convince them to surrender, you're, you're putting out false information about the enemy for their purposes, right? So in World War II, mm -hmm. it might mean we have a clandestine radio station that pretends to be German, uh, um, you know, from the German high command officials who are in rebellion against Hitler and they're, they're, you know, giving German language communications that are sent out that people can listen to in Germany. That's, that's psychological warfare. You're making up stuff, right? You know, you're dropping leaflets over the population, telling them how to surrender. You know, covert ops, though, but, you know, running a guerrilla warfare campaign as um, the psychological warfare division uh, did um, in East Europe or in Korea, you know, is another whole thing. And, uh, and I show in the article uh, that the Air Force's Psychological Warfare Division is discovered by um, two Canadian scholars, very important scholars, Stephen Endicott and Edward Hagerman, sadly both who passed in the past few years, um, who wrote a, a, an excellent book in the late 90s, The United States and Biological Warfare Secrets from the Early Cold War in Korea, published by University Press, University of Indiana Press. And... Um, it detailed how it showed how uh, they, they found documents and their documents showed they found an Air Force document showing that the Air Force's psychological warfare division 
was specifically put in charge of assisting and helping set parameters for the biological warfare campaign in Korea as part mm -hmm. of their covert ops that they were supposed to do. So, so here's Walker Mohurin, who's saying for whatever reason in his autobiography, and by the way, I was good friends with this Joseph Bryan um, before the war, before World War II, and before, excuse me, not World War II, before the Korean War. And he's my friend, and by the way, he's in the CIA, and he says no more about that, who he is. And only, you know, and I, and I just let that fly by me, and only when I was writing this article that I say, you know, gee, I, I, I want to look up more about Joseph Bryan. Couldn't find much at all. Turns out there's a great researcher on UFO issues by the name of Jack Brewer. He's on the internet. Um, and uh, he'd done a lot of work on this guy, Brian, because Brian, it turned out in later years, uh, was, uh, had gone onto this uh, NICAP board, this uh, military's National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. I'm not going to get into all that because that's all UFO stuff and I don't know much about it. <laughs> It's just interesting that Brian was on it. And he shows up in some other places, some other CIA documents, including about biological warfare. And that's in the article. And anyway, he turns out to be a major spook, a major guy involved in CIA's covert ops around the time of the Korean War. I mean, he's a leader. He's a chief of the OPC, who was Frank Wisner's group um, in the CIA, later, full, you know, uh, Office of Policy Coordination that had this bland name to, to cover up what they were really doing, which was, you know, uh, heavy-duty covert ops overthrow. Uh, uh, I think Nicholson Baker, in another excellent book called Baseless, which looks at a lot of this kind of material, writes about uh, uh, Frank Wisner's group, the office, the OPC, the Office of Policy Coordination, and their involvement, say, in the overthrow of the Guatemalan government in the early 50s. Mm. Um, so Joseph Wright, so anyway, back to the question of, the, so Mahurin is captured, he's released, he talks about how he's uh, being shunned. He's being shunned by the people he knows. He's being invited to give a talk here and there, and then he's disinvited. He's invited to a party. He's disinvited. Of these high-ranking people, this guy moves in high levels. I mean, when he returns home, his wife has flown out to meet him in San Francisco from the Midwest or wherever she lives back east by the head of North American Aviation. Pays for hers for Mahorin's wife to fly out and meet him. That wasn't happening to any other POWs I know of. Yeah. So, and, and no other POWs seem to have friends who are top CIA officials. <laughs> anyway, so Walker Mahorin, though, on the other hand, he, if one reads in, in my article that you mentioned, the first one where I, 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 you know, I give a lot of selections from his, his statement to his Chinese uh, uh, captors, you know, uh, gave a lot of information about the biological warfare campaign. And he was very nervous that he was going to be prosecuted for that. And uh, in his statement, by the way, he says you know, his, how he was against biological warfare. In any case, uh, what happens is he's invited to one of these parties, and then on the way home, his car is, is, is sideswiped, side and he's run off the road. And he's, he's injured badly and ends up in the hospital. Luckily, his kids and his wife weren't injured too badly. Thank goodness for him perhaps because he was hit, sideswiped on the driver's side. He doesn't say in the book, but that's my supposition as to why he was injured more seriously. And I think this was a, you know, a definite message sent to him. I know of other people personally who, uh, I know one of the people who was involved in the, uh, in the Cameron case, in the, you know, in the lawsuit against the CIA over the, the evil experiments of Ewan Cameron, the CIA um, um, 
had, uh, and, you know, financed and who's, uh, in fact, it was the guy who was in charge of sending the money to Cameron and overseeing the brainwashing research Cameron was doing that, uh, um, was in fact also heavily involved in the biological warfare campaign that makes up a big part of this article. His name is Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Colonel James Monroe. But you maybe have to read the article to get the full sense of that. But Walker Mahurin is in the hospital and then, and then he comes out and he's in, uh, interrogated for two weeks by the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, which is their high level, super secret agency. And, and my guess is it probably was CIA there as well. And uh, he ended up giving uh, writing for them a, a, a almost 200-page um, um, document on his experiences and whatever had happened there. And in later years, when he tried to get a copy for it himself, he could not even get it. That, that disappeared into government as well. So uh, one would love to see what he wrote. But, yeah, some very strange things were happening, right? Um, these people were, were subjected to multiple interrogations and psychiatric evaluations um, for a long time. And according to, uh, I think, British historian John Halliday, uh, the FBI, and here I have hope that the Freedom of Information Act request will serve me well, um, is said to have, uh, according to reputable historians, uh, uh, set surveillance on all of these people for years, basically the rest of their lives. That's just remarkable. To make sure, you know, because each of them, of course, had something to say, uh, if they could. Um, yeah, it is remarkable. Uh, unfortunately, they're now all, I believe, all passed. I don't think anyone is left alive. The only person I was able to reach out to that I could see was still alive, that was involved in any of this, was a psychologist um, who I tried to see if he would answer any questions um, Edgar Schein is a famous uh, organizational psychologist. That's what he's known for now. But back in uh, in the Korean War, he was a major in the Army and was involved in uh, the initial uh, evaluations and, and, and interrogations with the returning uh, um, airmen. So, uh, you know, or returning POWs. And, yeah, well, the, the airmen, you know, because that was the main thing. It was... There, was, there were two things going on that can be confusing at times. One was the general sense of unease because uh, about the POWs because many of them had, uh, from the U.S. military standpoint, collaborated with the enemy. They had signed peace petitions. They had given mm -hmm. interviews. They had radio messages about the good treatment they were getting. They had signed petitions against the war. Um, they were... Uh, 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 not you know, as a group of POWs, they uh, um, they had um, given a lot of uh, uh, said a lot of things against the U.S. war effort, and they had been used in a propagandistic way. And uh, the U.S. was afraid of what you know these people were. The Korean War was not a popular war at home, and as we know, it was a it was a horrific war and experience, and became known later as the Forgotten War, because certainly the U.S. didn't want to push it. And the people who'd been in it were heavily traumatized. And, and the first rule about trauma is um, people who were traumatized generally don't want to revisit anything that reminds them of the trauma. They want to get away from it. Right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, Shine didn't answer me. And, uh, you know, all I can do is keep pursuing this as I have been. And, and hopefully I will find even more material. Um, 
but I, I believe that I've, I've led the way so that we have today an understanding of the general outlines of what occurred. I don't know the full scale, like all the, all the different, you asked before, I don't know all for a fact, all of the different weapons that were used. Um, mm -hmm. I know that Nicholson Baker, who I mentioned earlier, believes that um, after the initial stages of the biological warfare campaign, that the rest of it was run as kind of a, a psyop in which they weren't really using biological weapons, but they were dropping um, insects they were essentially using as a terror weapon. Um, to mm -hmm. make people afraid, because if you don't know, if you're if you're if you let's say have a division that you need to move into place near X Hill, um, um, and uh, somebody a plane comes by and just drops a bunch of spiders that shouldn't be there, and it's kind of bizarre. What are all these spiders doing here? If you're in charge of that division, you're going to stop everything to try and deal with, because you're going to have to presume that this might be a biological warfare attack. The problem with biological warfare is you often don't know right away. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I remember hearing stories and I can't quite place where I heard them, but like there were stories, I think, of dropping bugs on Cuba and like some of the pilots were really freaked out because they were supposed to be like biologically, you know, like active warfare bugs. And they were just like in the back in crates, just like crawling around mm. and like and like if the, if sometimes they weren't actually like. Uh, actual spreaders of certain diseases, they were just a psyop. That would make a lot of sense right. why the poor controls in some of these uh, stories that you hear about. Yeah. So, I mean, we, you know, to what degree, uh, you haven't asked, but other people have asked me, you know, how many people were killed? Or, or one of the arguments used to say that there was no biological warfare campaign is to say, well, if there really was a, a, a giant biological warfare campaign, where's all the dead people? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but the problem with, with that, it was, it's just like anyone who's looked at the statistics today around uh, COVID-19. We, we don't have a war going on, but there's still a lot of controversy exactly as to how many people have died from COVID-19 or how many people, uh, what constitutes a case, what constitutes a COVID-19 death, what, you know, um, or if one even looks uh, conversely at how many people say died uh, in the Iraq war. And, you know, uh, or any war, it's very difficult to ascertain true figures. Um, and uh, yeah. they ultimately have to be um, discussed in a probabilistic way, meaning a statistically probabilistic fashion, because it's very hard to document. So in the case of the Korean War, both sides um, did not want to give out details about casualties because uh, it would be seen as to give some kind of information to the other side that you didn't want them to have. If you're China, I mean, in the ISC report, uh, Joseph Needham directly took this question on, and he specifically said, I'm not going to, we're not, we are not going to discuss casualty figures here. Although, actually, if you read the report, there are some casualty figures discussed briefly. But but mm -hmm. in the large scale, in terms of the program, they, they did not come to a determination as to its effectiveness because they didn't want to give help to the Americans as to how effective their campaign was or not. And from the American standpoint, they don't want to know, any, the other side to know uh, how many people they think. You know, so both sides are, are motivated to hold back the truth. Um, and when it comes to Unit 731, even within China itself, it apparently took a long time for the full scope of China, of Japan, excuse me, Japan's biological warfare campaigns 
um, and where it was conducted and what they did for them to finally, some decades after the war, determine you know, that about a couple of hundred thousand people had been affected by it. Um, because in the early days, it didn't seem to be that as much. So it's a complex, you know, it's a complex subject. Uh, the question of biological warfare, the casualties, how it's conducted, because so much is kept secret. And my, my, my big final thing here is that we need, and Nicholson Baker and others have said the same thing, we need to open the archives. We need a full airing of this. And I say open the archives, I mean the American archives, but also the Chinese archives and the North Korean archives. So we can get the full sense of what, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's a certain extent uh, um, um, utopian to believe that that's going to happen. So I can't, I have mm -hmm. no control over what certainly the Chinese or the North Korean governments do. But as an American citizen, I certainly have the right and I believe the moral duty to call for the opening of these archives, you know, the declassification of documents now that are 70 or more years old, right? Uh, those uh, histories of the United States Air Force in the uh, Korean War, in the biological warfare program during the Korean War period, written by Dorothy Miller that we you referenced before and we talked about a little bit, they're still heavily uh, uh, censored. Right. And here we are, you know, talking about things that happened again, you know, 70 plus years ago and they're still censored. Why? You know, um, we, we really, you know, unfortunately, I don't I, I thank you so much for having me on the show and others, you mm -hmm. know, but we just do not have uh, enough social weight behind this uh, um, demand that I'm making uh, to, to probably get what we uh, what we need to have. It's partly through flukes of history, such as the CIA's release of their own documents in, in 2010 to celebrate, you know, the Korean War without realizing that a, a small percentage, two or three percent of those documents were going to be discussing biological warfare. I think that if they thought about it and, and or more deeply, they would have withheld them too. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. So, Mr. Mr. K, how so? How has your work been received so far? Because uh, a lot of these are just astounding discoveries, yeah. and I get the impression right. that it's not very well received. Yeah, I, I'd like to say it's been very well received, but it hasn't been. Um, so, you know, some of this, you know, I will chalk up to myself because you know, I in my I'm an older guy now. I retired. I'm retired from my former occupations, and I retired because of age and poor health. And mm -hmm. um, in my mid 60s, and um, you know, I, I don't have the patience to wait for the months and months that it often takes to try and get um, something published in an academic journal where it's going to perhaps have some you know, heavier weight. But even I do know people who publish like that. So for instance, the son of John Powell, Thomas Powell, has published a number of articles on the Korean War and on, on, on just these kind of issues um, or, or, or similar aspects of the issues. And, uh, uh, you know, he does not have, you know, it hasn't appeared to me that it's gotten him much, much farther either. That there's a, a consensus, an anti-communist consensus that continues since the Cold War and if anything has been strengthened by the recent turn against China uh, by the U.S. Mm -hmm. government, the so-called Asia pivot, 
Um, and uh, people are either frightened or they're motivated or they're tools. Astoundingly, even on the American left, you know, um, Counterpunch really is an exception. Um, who's published my work and been um, very supportive. Mm. But, uh, you know, all, all these uh, tankies out there, I guess is the term people use today, mm-hmm. couldn't, be, couldn't be interested at all. I thought that when China, uh, and, and of course, nothing, I hear nothing from North Korea, but how would I? Um, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, North Korea, I mean, North Korean media. Um, I have no idea if they even know what I publish. But China uh, came across it, and uh, they asked, you know, they they interviewed me for Xinhua Xinhua News, and they Mm -hmm. did do some articles uh, just a few weeks back, uh, a month or so. And uh, so that was something. Um, American media, no interest at all. In fact, still denial. Um, uh, So whether that's the mainstream media I've approached, you know, like the New York Times or it's the – alternative media that I've approached. I don't want to, I'm still hoping to maybe get through on some of them. So I don't want to badmouth any of them, but some people have published, you know, certain components of it, uh, uh, COVID action, uh, news mm-hmm. and, uh, um, MR online and both published a few things about this, but, uh, amazingly on the uh, communicate on the comment documents, um, which are really the smoking gun, which are irrefutable, examples of uh, um, evidence, you know, from not communist sources, but from U.S. sources, um, have been totally ignored. The only one exception, again, is is Nicholson Baker in his book, Baseless. But he only had a subsection, a subset, rather, of those reports. He didn't have the full group that I was able to to find. And um, and I I don't know that he gives it the same weight I do, but... uh, but nevertheless, you know, but both of us anyway are writing on that in 2020. Otherwise, zero, nothing. And as far as I can tell, he doesn't pursue really the importance of those documents. I'm the only one pursuing that. And uh, MK Ultra, this other thing, I, I, I get personal words of encouragement from some people, but uh, uh, um, they certainly seem to do well on the internet. If I, when I'm able to look at the statistics of my own articles at medium.com. But uh, um, but in general, no, it's, it's almost as if they didn't exist outside of some podcast. It's so fascinating. To me, I look at all of these articles and they like just explode certain points in like the Cold War history, basically. And like yeah. to a certain extent, it also kind of, I wouldn't say like rewrites the story of mk ultra but it grounds it so much more in like a real tangible important thing that the security state would need to do which is handle these pow's rather than like give people lsd and see what happens right right yeah they claimed right that the whole brainwashing thing by the way right was if i didn't make that point earlier was was their official cover story for mk ultra is that you know we're mm-hmm. just the good guys and we found out that the communists were brainwashing our people, and we uh, needed to do a crash course uh, research on brainwashing so that we would be prepared and we would uh, to deal with this. Um, this is how it's discussed in the press. It's how it's even often discussed within internal documents. Um, mm. Of course, other internal documents then, specifically things like the minutes of the Artichoke Committee or 
you know, uh, the kind of correspondence that would go on between uh, Sidney Gottlieb, who was in charge of MK Ultra scientifically for the CIA, and people like Louis Joylin West, as, as detailed in Tom O'Neill's book on Charles Manson recently, which has a huge section on uh, uh, Dr. West. Um, mm-hmm. Just, uh, uh, you know, there's there's so much out there, but, um, you know, it, it's kind of like, there is something happening though. Uh, there was the, there was the, uh, I think it was Netflix who did the Wormwood document uh, documentary on Frank mm-hmm. Olson, his murder, and um, which brings up the question of the biological warfare in um, Korea. And um, there was, of course, that article as I mentioned before in the past, uh, Al Jazeera, and, and, and there's been a handful of them out there. Um, that's the funny thing though. Cause you watch like the Wormwood documentary or something and you see that like he was paranoid before he died. And this, like your work explains why he would be paranoid because they were working on these terribly like horrific things. And there was all this intrigue surrounding it and no one smells like a rose working on it. Right. It just, this provides so much better context for understanding those things. He died at a very crucial moment. He's, we're talking, you know, this is November 1953. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the middle of November, they go to this, you know, secluded place. Um, and supposedly he's dosed with LSD and so begins the cover story that he's on his way going crazy and he ends up killing himself. But the, um, the time is important because at that point, the confessions, of the flyers are now published in a book that had 19, 19 different confessions, including the confessions of Walker and McGuire, in, um, are now open to the world. Uh, of course, they're not being allowed in the United States, but the rest of the world's reading them um, to the mm-hmm. degree they can. And they're trying to destroy them everywhere. I think I mentioned even how Indonesian libraries were destroying books about germ warfare by the Americans mm-hmm. in Korea. But, um, but nevertheless, it was out there. And, uh, it's possible at that time, uh, I, I believe, looking at the Frank Olson story, that there was certainly a security review going on. These people were obsessed with security. I, I, when I read the artichoke documents now, they, 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 they're obsessed with security. And, um, um, you know, it just didn't look like Olson was, uh, could be trusted for whatever reason. And uh, they did away with him. You know, Fort Detrick has an extraordinary amount of untimely death, which I'm researching now and probably going to write on. It wasn't just Frank Olson. Um, uh, two of the people who interrogated Shiro Ishii from Fort Detrick died um, strange deaths. And the military commandant uh, at Fort Detrick himself, uh, Major Harold Isbell, Isbell um, was found in, 19, uh, uh, in late 1950, uh, uh, shot on on at Fort Detrick in his car, mm-hmm. um, presumed suicide. I'm trying to get the details of the inquest into his death, but there's just way too many strange deaths happening in 1950, 51, 52, 53. Um, you know, there were only maybe six people um, who were involved in writing reports, interviewing and writing reports on Unit 731 for the Army Chemical Corps. Two of them died untimely deaths um, out of the six. That's pretty strange. That's very curious, yeah. Very curious. I mean, 
could be a statistical fluke, you know, but uh, uh, Avro, we're thinking of Avro Thompson, uh, just, I believe, uh, Joseph Hill, Frank Olson, and Harold Isbell, four people at high levels at Fort Detrick, all dead within a three-year period involved in the biological weapons program. So anyway, I mean, I'm not talking about some guy who caught a disease and died um, by a lab leak. Um, those kind of things could occur too, but uh, I'm talking about high-level individuals who were involved in, in major components of the covert aspects of the biological war. So I don't know what that all means yet myself, but it is it is odd. Well, when you get to the bottom of it, I'd love to have you back on to talk about this or any other future topics. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah, this is ongoing. Ongoing, Jim. Do you uh, have any closing thoughts you'd like to share? Well, the only closing thought I really have, and I wish I could remember it exactly how it first occurred to me, um, and there's a lot of things we didn't cover here. I encourage people to mm -hmm. read whatever links you have, to read the links that I post in my documents as well. I mean, my, my, mm -hmm. my articles, because they're important books. I mentioned the Endicott and Hagerman book, but there, there are others, and it includes uh, educating yourself if you have it on Unit 731, because it's an extremely important topic. Um, mm -hmm. And it's in the cover up of that as well. It would, it's directly linked to this, but it, which is this: that if we can't, people want uh, to get to the bottom, let's say, of COVID nineteen and, and what's going on. They want to get to the bottom of, uh, or they want to, to you know, deal with the issue of uh, North Korea's nuclear weapons or mm -hmm. U.S. China relations. So how are we going to deal with that? Any of those things when we can't even still get the truth? Right or deal with the U.S. covert biological war campaign in Korea during the Korea seventy years ago, mm -hmm. right? And if that stuff's still secret, what's secret now in all these other places? Um, you know, the what's past is prologue, and uh, um, we we do need this is important. This is important, and I, uh, this is important stuff. And I'm not saying this just because it's uh, my hobby, if you will, of researching this. Um, it's important because of what's going on right now in the U.S. Uh, aggressive stance towards China and North Korea uh, about the, the possibilities for a breakout of war. It's important for understanding and, and, and getting uh, the truth out of our own uh, uh, health care, uh, military complex, you know, for issues about trust going forward on future pandemics. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, we need to get to the bottom of this. We need to to find out what really happened. And that's, that's my final uh, comment. No, that's, that's beautiful. So thank you very much again for taking the time and being very generous with your time to discuss all of this. Well, thank you. You're also generous of your time by taking the time it takes to read my very long articles and uh, and think about them and 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 want to converse and share that. It's very important. Back in 1953, we were riding high on victory. The Cold War getting colder all the time. There's many ways to fight a war It gets dirty more and more The powers that be thinking outside the lines So the boys down at the CIA Getting curious one day Thinking of ways to get a leg up on the Reds 
Through manipulation and experimentation, they thought they could save the nation by taking citizens and messing with their heads. Well, they rounded up some volunteers, but the volunteers had no idea they were about to be turned into laboratory rats. They were unwitting participants in government experiments. They wouldn't be the same after that. They got those MK Ultra Blues, those MK Ultra Blues. Don't know what happens. Guess we'll see when we give these soldiers LSD. Lock them in a room for a spell. Maybe they'll tell no lies. Maybe they'll be hypnotized. Or maybe they'll just think that they're in hell. But the thing about mind control is eventually takes its toll. Can often have the opposite effect. People don't like to be misled, especially if it's by the feds. Type of thing could make you lose respect. Well, sometimes subjects came real easy. In the door come old Ken Kesey, ready to see some universal truth. He was flying over the cuckoo's nest, taking the Kool-Aid acid test. I believe he was successful in his pursuit. Don't want those MK Ultra Blues. Those MKO troubles. Some people's minds were blown, other people's minds were shown. But there's more to this here life than meets the eye. Peek behind the cosmic veil, visions from beyond the pale, a doorway to a different kind of life. So the drug they couldn't weaponize was a failure in some people's eyes, but was decidedly successful for some. What the CIA could not predict, people trying to get their kicks, taking LSD just for fun. It's a lesson to the powers that be. Don't be messing with people's reality, making us forget who we are. Well, psychological manipulation is hard on a population. People can only be pushed so far. Don't want those MK Ultra Blues. Those MK Ultra Blues. Oh, those MK Ultra Blues. Those MKO troubles.